Thank you again for having me uh, to come back. It's always a joy to be here with the uh, congregation. And thank you as well for the invitation to speak about uh, the main lesson in Luke's Gospel. Uh, I have spent my whole career, uh, both in preaching and at OC, uh, focused on the, the Gospels. I am a Jesus freak, I like to tell uh, students. My PhD is in Jesus. Uh, it was on uh, Jesus and the law and what we call the synoptic Gospels. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. Uh, and so, and I teach lots of classes over at OCs. Besides kind of the general classes, uh, I also teach classes that focus on Jesus and the Gospels. So I have a class on the parables of Jesus, and I have things uh, on Jesus from Scripture to screen that kind of looks at Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus in movies. Uh, and so whenever I get an opportunity to focus in on the Gospels and Jesus, I always want to take that, that chance. So when the invitation kind of came and here is what you were doing. Well, my first kind of question is, well, what Gospels are, are available? Uh, and so Luke's Gospel was available, and that was uh, fantastic, because I'm all, already working on some other things that interact with Luke's, Luke's Gospel. Now, um, Marty said that the uh, FBI was kind of investigating some of my background. Well, what they didn't, what they didn't tell you uh, is uh, just this summer, uh, I was nominated for uh, the International Society of Biblical Literature as the co-chair for what we call the Synoptic Session. So uh, this is uh, an organization which, uh, like the Society of Biblical Literature here in the United States, uh, meets all over the world, uh, and so I've been a part of their steering committee, uh, and then this year I was uh, appointed to be one of their co-chairs. And so we plan out the scholarly investigation of the Synoptic Gospels and bring scholars from all around the world uh, to talk about different issues. So having a chance, once again, to kind of come and to look at one particular Gospels with you and to kind of dig really closely into the, the main lessons or main ideas into Luke was a great uh, opportunity. So thank you for, for doing that. So what I'm going to look at is Luke's main lesson uh, for Christians. And uh, I know that maybe the idea was, well, what's the main lesson? And you might want to push me, well, John, just give us one idea. Well, it's a little very hard for me to just choose one uh, from Luke. Uh, I've sometimes told my uh, classes that if I would love to have a situation in which we had four bar stools up, and we could have the four gospel authors, and we could ask them each individually questions on a whole range of topics. Because I think you would oftentimes get uh, a different slant or a different perspective or a different stress about subjects. And one of those subjects is uh, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So if you were to ask the four gospel authors that one question, what, what does a disciple of Christ look like, you're going to get four different answers. Now, I can't really go tonight into Matthew, Mark's, and John's, um, but we're going to look tonight at Luke, and particularly if Luke was asked that question, what he would say in terms of, well, a disciple of Christ in particular is this, and I'm focusing on four things that I see when, when Luke crafts his gospel he intentionally lays out these four areas with special significance. In other words, while Mark and Matthew and John slightly touch on these other things, Luke gives much more focus to them. So if Luke was asked, what's the mark? What does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? We're going to focus in on his work on repentance, prayer, 
generosity, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you have heard the expression that's been kind of going on quite recently, uh, identity politics. It's kind of a buzzword sometimes that's going around. Uh, It's been around since the 70s. Um, It's a phrase that developed in the 70s to describe self-consciousness of how others want you to behave according to how they perceive your identity. Um, And so, in particular, this uh, language, this phrase about um, identity politics uh, is used primarily by groups that see themselves as oppressed by the dominant culture. So, uh, it comes up in discussions about what does it mean to be a, uh, a white person, a Caucasian, or a African-American person? Uh, what does it mean to be a male or a female? What does it mean to, to be um, poor or rich? Uh, in Northern Ireland, particularly, we have identity politics uh, that goes around the idea of being a loyalist, those who want to stay attached to Great Britain, or Republicans, which in that context means you want to have a united Ireland. And so there are pressures that go on within society about, hey, if you are a male, this is what males do, or if you're a female, This is what a female is like. And there's a kind of a dominant culture that identifies that. And there are people who resist that because they feel like they they don't actually fit into whatever other people are saying, this is the way people like you should be. So I'm kind of intrigued by that whole idea of of this political identity uh, because people are very interested in how do I identify myself? How do I see myself How do I project myself? How do I want others to perceive me? Well, more importantly, I think I really want to focus in on what Luke sees as the identity markers of a believer. If he can put pressure on you, the pressure he's going to put is, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, these are things that mark you out. Now, you have to remember about uh, some things about Luke's gospel. Uh, one is about when Luke's gospel was written. There's, you know, debates about uh, that. Uh, right now, scholarly consensus can go anywhere from uh, somewhere in the mid-60s to some are even dating it to around 120. So it's a very big spectrum. Uh, I date to Luke's gospel somewhere in the, uh, after the 70s, maybe into the 80s. Uh, And at that time, in the 80s, already there had developed groups of believers of Jesus all across the Mediterranean world. And as these groups developed, each type of group is kind of saying what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to be a follower. And Luke is offering up his own perspective of what that means, gathering together the traditions, the stories that were told about Jesus uh, and the traditions and stories that were told about the early church and the early church's movement uh, across, particularly through Paul and into Asia Minor, into Greece, uh, and eventually to, to Rome. And so through all of this storytelling, he wants people to understand this is a Christian. Now, uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is addressed to a person by the name of Theophilus. Everybody kind of reads that when you open that up. Um, I take that name to mean an actual person because he's called Most Excellent Theophilus, and I think the phrase Most Excellent refers to a person who 
who actually has some kind of office, as it were, in the Roman Empire. And uh, now, I tend to believe, though we don't know for certain, I tend to believe that Theophilus is most likely uh, Luke's benefactor. In other words, he probably has made it possible for Luke to write this narrative about the gospel and about the life of the church. He's funded Luke to do this. Somebody has to fund them because it's costly to write. It's costly to get the materials. And so somebody funds it. I think Theophilus probably funded it. And what Luke is doing in addressing it to Theophilus is he is doing what other ancient writers often did with their benefactors. So he's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus most likely works for the Roman government. And he is explaining something about this movement. But it's unlikely that Luke ever intended this work to be solely for Theophilus' eyes only. This was intended to be spread around. Just like Mark's gospel had been spread around, Luke's gospel was going to be spread around, and he hoped it would influence other Christians. So while it might have been addressed to Theophilus, it was intended to be read by other believers. And these other believers are coming to understand Luke's vision of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. So we'll focus here then on these four uh, key characteristics. First of all, uh, about practicing repentance. Now, Luke has an interest in repentance that's particularly evident in Luke chapter 5. Uh, in Luke 5 and verse 32, well, we can start at verse 31. Jesus is responding to uh, why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he answers them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but sick. But Luke has, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So Luke makes it clear that, Paul, that Jesus sees his, ident- his purpose, his mission, is to go out and find sinners, these particular Jews who are violating the, the law, uh, the, the Mosaic law, and to call these individuals to turn back to God. Also, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, after the parable of the lost sheep, we have this emphasis about uh, why Jesus' central mission is also noting that heaven's joy when one sinner repents. These are some elements in Luke's storytelling that are unique to him. In other words, it's not in Mark. It's not, a, it's not in, in Matthew. It's in Luke because he's telling this story about Jesus and Jesus' purpose and coming into the world and calling sinners to repent. Uh, Several places, I'm going to go through some of these quite quickly, but several places is where we find this unique message of repentance in Luke's storytelling. Um, In the uh, angel Gabriel's announcement of of John the Baptist's birth, uh, John the Baptist's mission is to call Israel to repent that is, to turn back to God. Now, when John the Baptist is calling for repentance, we need to hear that language as well in the ways in which Jews in the first century would hear that. We tend to hear the word repentance in a much more individualistic sense. In other words, uh, we know the gospel plan of salvation is, you know, hear, believe, confess, you know, uh, repent and be baptized. So we think of repentance as kind of this process of an individual's kind of conversion. But in Jesus' day, in the day of John the Baptist and Jesus, repentance, and particularly their preaching of repentance, is all about the nation. The nation 
turning, as it were, back to God. And while, of course, individuals have to turn back to God for the nation to, to go back, that call for repentance it has a much stronger uh, group dynamic aspect to it. So John the Baptist is calling the nation to turn back to God, meaning be faithful to the covenant that God has established with you. God established a covenant with us through Abraham, through Moses. If you're disobeying the law, you're, you're disobeying that covenant. You need to turn back to God. You need to repent and start being obedient. And so this is what repentance means for John the Baptist. Luke is also uh, one who connects John the Baptist, uh, not only with uh, John the Baptist's mission, but also Jesus warns those who are not repentant as others might have been if they saw Jesus' miracles. In a couple places, Jesus warns Chorazin and Bethsaida about their refusal to repent in spite of miracles being done for them. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 13 14. Uh, and he warns the crowd about not repenting uh, as if Nineveh would have repented if they would have seen the things that the crowds have seen. So there's this strong warning that's out there. You're not repenting. Also, Jesus uh, warned some Galileans about repentance, uh, that if they are to repent rather than fall into the same fate as Galileans, whom Pilate mixed their sacrifices with blood, um, when the Tower of Siloam uh, fell. Now, that's in Luke 13. That's a unique story in Luke. Another, another story about failing to repent. Uh, these warnings, then, are followed by the parable of the unfruitful fig tree, who is given time to bear fruit before being cut down. So, uh, several parables that are unique to Luke also help to emphasize the importance of repentance. Uh, now, the parable of the lost sheep is also in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, but Matthew and Luke are using that parable in different ways. Luke is using it in particular, the idea of Jesus is calling sinners to come back, his table fellowship with them, the questions that are being raised, why is he doing that? But Luke also has this parable of the lost coin. Uh, and he also has the parable of the lost son, which many of us know, the parable of the prodigal son. You may see this picture here. I'm not sure how clearly it is for some of you to see this. This is Rembrandt's uh, picture of the prodigal son. Uh, actually, this photo here, uh, I took it just this year. So this International Society of Biblical Literature met in Helsinki. And um, so after the conference was finished, uh, I got a train over to St. Petersburg in Russia. And uh, it's in Russia uh, at their museum uh, there where this uh, famous portrait of Rembrandt's uh, is held. And so uh, I didn't have a lot of time to go through the museum, but that was the one picture I definitely wanted to get, Rembrandt's prodigal son. And so uh, that is a unique to Luke, and it's a story about repentance. Now, we don't have time. Maybe I'll be invited some other time to come back and talk about the parable of the prodigal son. But the parable of the prodigal son has a lot of interesting twists and turns to it. And if repentance is one of the ideas in it, one thing to watch out, this is homework for you if you want to try it sometime, is how repentant really is the son? Because the son looks like, in the story, like he's contriving his motives. 
because he says to himself, what will I say to my father? I know I will say this. So one thing in Luke's gospel is in parables, whenever somebody talks to themselves, that's usually a bad character. It's usually never a good character. So here this son is, you know, figuring out what to say to dad. And he got, he's got his speech. And he's going back. But all that matters is well, not whether or not how sincere he is, but he came home. But he came back. And that's what's significant. Repentance, then, is part of coming back, returning back to the Father. So several parables uh, do that. Uh, also, uh, Lazarus and the rich man hints at the uh, importance of, of repentance, as well as the Pharisees and tax collectors. Also, in Luke, it's only in Luke's gospel that the idea of interhuman forgiveness of sins is dependent upon repentance. In other words, uh, if somebody sins against you, if they repent, then you must forgive them. So that language of, if they repent is there, that condition, before one forgives. Uh, also, Jesus commissions his disciples to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So just like uh, Matthew has a commission story about going to all the worlds and making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, well, in Luke's gospel, that commission is about getting people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we could carry this on through the book of Acts, but that gives you the ideas of how this is emphasized in Luke. The second major thing that um, Luke sees as a characteristic of disciples is not just that they take seriously and value seriously the activity of repenting in their lives, but also the role of prayer. So, uh, prayer plays a, a crucial role in Jesus' life in Luke's gospel. Um, in the river at his baptism, uh, when he hears the voice from heaven, only Luke tells us it is while Jesus is praying. Um, in Luke 5, verse 16, if you have Luke 5 right there, uh, you want to turn over there to verse 16, uh, well, we'll start with verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That's a, Luke, that's a particularly Luke statement. Jesus would withdraw in the midst of the busy ministry to make time for prayer. Um, uh, he prays all night in Luke 6, verse 12, uh, before selecting the 12 apostles. Uh, in the garden of, on the mountain, as he's being transfigured, he prays. In the garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, uh, he prays. Uh, just on the cross, before he dies, uh, he prays. Uh, he even tells Peter uh, that he has prayed for Peter because Satan wants to sift Peter, in other words, test Peter, um, like, uh, like wheat. So prayer is something that Luke not only inherits from the material that he has to work with, but it's something that he also expands upon in his story and telling about Jesus. We also have that Luke, um, it's in Luke where disciples want to learn 
from Jesus about what to pray. Now, Matthew also has this uh, information, but it's also there in Luke about what to pray, and then when we have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, He tells disciples to pray as well, realizing that God or seeing God like a father who wants to give what it is that we need. Again, this is a statement we find in Matthew's, but in Luke's gospel, it particularly focuses in on what we'll talk about later, and that is that God wants to give the Holy Spirit. We also have in Luke that is to pray to escape the sufferings of the end of the age. We also have in Luke parables, several parables, only in Luke's gospel, that has to do about the idea of prayer and being persistent in prayer. We have the parable of the friend at midnight in Luke chapter 11. And we have the parable of the unjust judge. So I have a picture there of a a scene of the unjust judge. Here, too, is another parable that maybe we should come back and look at sometimes. Very oftentimes, the widow in this story is pictured kind of like this picture as a, uh, as a woman who's very weak and, and powerless. But Luke may be indicating that this woman is not the kind of, of weak, subservient woman, but rather is a woman of fierce determination. Uh, and is going after this judge in a way that uh, may break certain expectations the way women ought to act and uh, act at that time. So, uh, but that is a parable about prayer unique to, to Luke. Also, the, uh, per, the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector is also a parable of prayer. This emphasis on prayer continues and acts among the disciples um, about significant challenges. And so there's lots of places in Acts where prayer is mentioned. But all of this amounts to this understanding of Luke that health and faithfulness of believers is linked to their devotion in prayer. In other words, he projects, as it were, this is what a church who is really following Jesus, looks like. Now, there may be lots of groups out there claiming that they are the true, legitimate representation of Jesus. But for Luke, if they're not people devoted to prayer, you might want to call into question their identity. Believers pray. They're devoted to it. They see Jesus as their model. They see its significance and importance. They understand who God is, what God wants to do for them. So they're willing and eager and persistent to pray, particularly for God's justice and God's mercy. So not only is prayer a significant thing, but also uh, he wants to talk about generosity. Now, uh, Mark's gospel doesn't have a lot to say about money, and John's gospel doesn't have a lot to say about money. Matthew does. Several places in Matthew's gospel teaches about money, but once again, Luke has more to say about it. Uh, It's in Mary's song. So Mary has a song in Luke's gospel, and as a part of that song, in chapter 1, verses 52 and 53, uh, this song talks about how God will send the rich away empty-handed. So God is getting ready to do something in this child that Mary is going to have. She, of course, is blessed. But this child, what this child is going to do, is going to have a reversal of fortunes. Now, when we see the language about rich 
and the Gospels, or really anywhere else in the New Testament, we do have to keep one thing in mind about that moniker, about rich. Uh, of course, when we use that word rich, uh, we might think of somebody, if we say, well, he's rich or she's rich, it's always more money than us. <laughs> we might not see ourselves as rich, but of course, all of us in this room are probably rich in comparison to the overall world standards. When you start looking at what people have in China and in India and in all parts of the world, you are a rich person. But we sometimes don't see ourselves as rich. We always see the person who has the bigger house or has more cars or have greater vacations or, or whatever, have, have that exposable. They're the rich people. But in Jesus' day, the moniker rich oftentimes is associated with a type of person. Yes, you can be a, a wealthy person and be a righteous person. Abraham is wealthy, and, and he's a righteous person. Uh, other people have funds and money, and they can be righteous. Uh, but in Jesus' day, they viewed the economy as a closed system. It's a closed system. Which means that in order for you to become rich, you must get money from somebody else because there's a limited amount of money. Now, we see, uh, by we, I mean us here in the United States, in the Western society, Western world, we have an open view of the economy, which basically means we don't think that if one person becomes rich that they necessarily are taking from somebody else. You can generate your own wealth. So we don't attach a rich person as someone who takes from a, somebody else. But that's not the case in Jesus' day. In their day, it's a closed system. And a wealthy person, a rich person, only becomes wealthy or rich from what they get from others. So oftentimes, rich people automatically are seen as somehow or another taking advantage or oppressing others. So, uh, the rich will be sent away empty-handed. Uh, John the Baptist, uh, it's only in Luke's Gospel, uh, teaches the crowd to share with those who have need. Jesus' ministry is launched with, a counter, with, with the announcement of the year of the Lord's favor. This is really significant. So, Luke 4. If you have your Bibles again, let me urge you to go to Luke 4. Verses 18 and 19. I'm going to come back to this passage again in our next section. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. His Jesus is reading here from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus sees that this prophecy of Isaiah is coming about in his, in his ministry. The year of the Lord's favor is coded language for the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is the announcement when, if you have debts... Debts are now canceled. Whatever you owe somebody else, that has to be marked off the books. Now that's great news for the poor, who very oftentimes have to borrow, who are in debt. 
And the creditors are oftentimes the wealthy because they have the money to lend to the poor. So a year of Jubilee is great news for the poor. It's not great news if you've got money lent out <laughs> because that money now is gone. But Jesus sees his ministry now as this great good news for those who suffer, who are in need. Jesus tells uh, Pharisees who are lovers of money uh, that they are to give alms to the poor. He even sees, will tell them at one time, uncleanliness is, can be seen as greed and being uncharitable. So uncleanliness is not just about uh, ceremonial uncleanliness, touching something you shouldn't touch, but you can come, become unclean if you are greedy, if you are uncharitable, if you're not willing to help those who are in need. We also, once again, have uh, parables unique to Luke that emphasize this idea of what the rich ought to do with their money. We have the parable of the foolish rich man who may have thought he had good reasons to store up the extra ones because maybe as a rich man he was shrewdly thinking, hey, if I store this money up instead of putting it out on the market, then I can keep prices of my crops high. But if I flood the market with my excess, then guess what goes to the price of my crops? They go down. So why don't you just hold it back and keep prices where they, where they are more beneficial for me? He thinks he's got it all sorted out. He thinks he's got it all laid out, what's going to happen. Of course, he's foolish because he's been relying upon his wealth, his security, and his riches. And instead of thinking about uh, his security, being rich towards God. Once again, it's the rich man who talks to himself. He says to them, what will I say? Uh, and, we, of course, we have that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because the rich man knows, as he will hear from Abraham, uh, nobody's going to go warn his brothers, because you know fine well through Moses and the prophets, God has made it abundantly clear time and time again, nobody should have a surprised look on their face. Take care of the needy. Take care of the needy. When your life is evaluated, what you will be looked at, are you taking care of the needy? If you haven't, you have something to account for, such as the rich man. Now, Lazarus, we don't know. It's not just because he is poor that he gets to be in Abraham's bosom, but there's a situation that he's probably one of the righteous poor. In other words, that you know, there was nobody to take care of him, but he remained righteous, he remained faithful, and therefore he got his uh, reward uh, in Abraham's bosom. So Jesus teaches his disciples to sell their possessions and give to the poor. He, he just doesn't do it once, but he does it several times. And so this is a, a key idea that is stressed. And we see this in Acts as well where people bring their things together, they share with one another, uh, they take care of e each other, they're not tied to their possessions. So the last one, the last thing that he would see uh, as a distinctive characteristic of the believers, followers of Jesus, are those who are empowered by the Spirit. Now, the idea of the Spirit comes up in Mark, and it comes up in Matthew, and it comes up in, in John. Matter of fact, John does have quite a significant thing about uh, the, the Spirit. But each one as well are saying some things that are kind of unique when they talk about the Spirit. And Luke is no different. He has some unique things that he sees. And in particular for Luke, the Spirit 
is God's power to make things happen. Um, to, it is God's power to, to speak the word out. So it's in uh, Luke and in Acts that we get this language filled with the Spirit. Now you also have that in Ephesians, but in particularly of the Gospels. It's only in Luke. People are filled with the Spirit. Um, they are filled to proclaim, to prophesy, to fight for the kingdom of God or to exalt Christ. We see this. John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. Zechariah is. Simeon in the temple is filled with it. Jesus himself is filled with the Spirit. Uh, Peter is filled with the Spirit. The apostles on the day of Pentecost filled with it. Stephen is filled with it. Paul is filled with it. People are filled with the Spirit. And when they are, the very next thing that you can see them do is they are proclaiming, preaching, prophesying. And oftentimes, that preaching, prophesying, proclaiming, talking about is in the context of some type of hostile audience. So it's as if the Spirit empowers these people in order to courageously, boldly say what they need to say about Christ. And in that way, they are bringing in the kingdom of God into the world. The Spirit, in, in Luke's uh, gospel, the Spirit is the one who brings about the birth of the Messiah. Uh, John the Baptist tells the crowd that one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends, uh, descends upon Jesus um, in his, at his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Again, in that unique thing that Luke does with Jesus' sermon in Nazareth. So, the, the kind of preaching in Nazareth bit, that's in Mark and that's in Matthew. But Luke does something with that. He takes that story and he moves it. He moves it in the storyline. He moves it up front. And he makes it the kind of introduction of Jesus' ministry. Kind of like Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is this introduction. For Luke, it's that preaching. And in that preaching, it is about the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit is now at work in a powerful way in both Jesus' ministry and unleashed into the world. Now, Jews would understand what the coming of the Spirit would mean uh, in a way maybe that we don't appreciate because they would associate the coming of the Spirit is the sign that the end of the age is coming because the expectations of many Jews is that when this age ends and we enter into the age to come, eternal life, that is when the Spirit of the Lord is being poured out upon God's people. Now, what we have in the preaching of Jesus in the early church is that end of the age is already beginning to happen now. Already now the Spirit is coming. Already now evidence of the Spirit is at work. It has descended upon, it has descended upon Jesus' baptism. Uh, it is upon him and his announcement in Nazareth. God is like a good father, and he wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who act. 
Mark ha- Matthew has this same uh, teaching bit uh, of Jesus about uh, praying to the Father and God is like a father who wants to give to his children. In Matthew, it is he wants to give good gifts. In Luke, it is he wants to give the Holy Spirit. So once again, Luke is emphasizing the the importance of the Holy Spirit to the life of the individual believer if they will ask for it. The Spirit is God's power. Uh, that will guide and direct the church's mission. So in Luke chapter 24, this will be the last one that we'll look at here then uh, tonight. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Luke 24 and in verse uh, 49. So, I, so just kind of the way in which he's commissioning his disciples. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, it doesn't mention the Spirit there, but we, if you read Acts that follows Luke's gospel, they stay in Jerusalem, and what happens is the Spirit comes upon them, the power of the Spirit. So that's how Luke sees the Spirit as this empowering agency in the life of believers so that they can carry out God's purposes in the world to be a witness, to testify, to proclaim, particularly to hostile environments, that they become emboldened and confident about what it is that they're going to say. And we see places in Acts where the Spirit is guiding, the Spirit sends this person, or the Spirit blocks Paul from going someplace. The Spirit is in control about what's happening and how the message is getting out. So if I get back to uh, Luke here in my bar stool, I'm going to ask Luke, tell me what a Christian looks like. What's those identity markers? What's most important to you, Luke, about what a Christian should look like? And so that true identity of a believer in Christ is one who knows the value of and practicing in their life repentance. It's not just something you do in order to convert. It is something that you're going to do throughout your life continuing to come back to God's law, continuing to come back to God's teaching, looking at what you're doing in your life and realizing changes are needing to be made. And it's being devoted in the practice of prayer, cultivating prayer as an integral part of who you are. Just as much as you would eat every day, drink every day, you are praying every day. It's your lifeline. It's your health. Your your vitality as a believer hinges on your prayers. And particularly praying for God's justice and the Holy Spirit. And practicing generosity. Luke just doesn't want to see any disciple think that they can be a follower of Jesus and turn a blind eye to the needy, particularly the needy in their own midst. If that happens... There's something that's not being transformed in that person's life. And finally, this uh, true Christian, a legitimate Christian, as far as Luke is concerned, is one who knows about the Spirit. And they know that the Spirit is empowering them to proclaim and to fight for the breaking in of God's kingdom through the preaching and proclamation of Christ. So what does that mean for, for us? 
taking a kind of an inventory of our identity. We're taking a look at, am I really taking repentance seriously? Am I keep coming back to turning my thoughts in my life to what Scripture says? Am I really cultivating prayer? Or am I just treating it as this kind of side thing that sometimes I have to do? Or is it something that I want to do because I want that conversation with God? And what is my generosity really saying about my priorities? And do I think of the Holy Spirit as maybe just something that kind of whimsically is said, I get when I'm baptized? Or am I looking at the way in which the Spirit, opening myself up for the Spirit to empower me to say what I need to say about Christ to the people that need to hear Him? In that way, I see these are the things that Luke wants to say is the main thing Christians ought to realize. Shall I end with prayer? Let's do. Let's let's end in prayer then. Gracious Father, thank you for what you give to us in Scripture, that we can uh, know something about who you are and what you are doing in the world. Thank you for blessing us uh, this evening uh, with just the fellowship of this congregation and for those who love you and want to uh, grow in faith. Continue, Father, to work on us in the ways in which we need to submit our lives to you and to your will. And forgive us, Father, for our sometimes reluctancy to turn back to you and our unwillingness to pray and our unwillingness to share and our lack of faith in what the Spirit is doing in our lives. Help us, Father, to always be open to what you want to do for us. Bless each of us now as we depart from this place. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.